0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. A church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Before we pray, I would like to finish Psalm 25 today. So we started Psalm 25 last week. My goal was to get through the whole psalm and we got through um, seven verses. Uh, so we 'll we 'll try to finish psalm twenty five today and if I can create some space for some questions i 'd like to do that as well um, but let let me read psalm twenty five this This has been a psalm that i 've just you know springtime in the psalms is is probably the worst title in the history of advent <laughs> adult education but i 'm um, not good at that. But it's basically just going to be a several weeks together doing some of the psalms that I've just been in. So that's that's the idea. And Psalm 25 has been the one I've, that I've been drawn to lately. Um, and so I, w- I would like to l- uh, read this all to you. It's a long psalm, and then we'll pray, and then we'll put the car in reverse a little bit and, do- and dive in. So Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose his soul shall abide in well-being his and his offspring shall inherit the land. the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him, He makes known to them his covenants, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress, consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And the last verse here. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. So Father, as we press into this psalm again this morning, I pray that by the effective power of your Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to perceive the truth and that you would have us to learn and to know from it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, hello. A real live baby. It's amazing. I've had four of those, but it's hard to remember that they actually look like that. Wow. Um, well, okay, so Psalm 25, uh, longest psalm. Um, and I, I, there are three things that continually make its presence known in this psalm. All right, to kind of give this overview of what we're doing here. Uh, the psalmist is in distress. And and there's, and there's I'll, I'll lean into this as we press through the psalm. But the psalm's in distress in what um, Walter Brueggemann and his, his classifications of the psalms would call um, a season of disorientation. And I think that's a, a kind of helpful way of understanding the, the, the psalms and the way in which especially lament psalms... Psalms of complaint, although I don't, I don't love that phrase. I mean, but I guess it's okay. But psalms of complaint, psalms of lamentation, psalms of disorientation, uh, which is which makes a lot of sense about the psalms in their relationship in the in the um, in the writings or the poetic books, where you will find this sense of disorientation peppered throughout the third part of the Hebrew canon called the writings. A book like Job, for example, is a classic book of the righteous sufferer in disorientation. In fact, one of my, my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, in his commentaries on Job throughout the dogmatics, Barth says that the chief problem that Job has is his, his understanding of God or who he thought God was, is no long, God is no longer acting in predictable ways anymore. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, I, I get up in the morning and I email my kids and, and, of course, Joe wasn't emailing, but you take my point. I check on my children and I go and check on my business affairs and have a little bit of trouble here or there. But for the most part, life goes along according to a predictable pattern until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't anymore, that's where di- the disorientation occurs. God's no longer acting predictably with me. And because he's not acting predictably with me, Job becomes somewhat unplugged, even in his rhetoric, as you move throughout the book, where Job begins to say things after chapter 2 that are that are rather risky. Uh, in fact, there's a sense in which one might think that the things that Job says after Job chapter 2 could be even categorized as offensive. Um, they're the kind of things that I think if you heard someone say... In church, in a public setting, we'd all begin to squirm uncomfortably because that, something about that just doesn't seem right. But there you have Job, along with a book like Lamentations, which historically we've linked with the book of Jeremiah. But in the Hebrew canon, the book of Lamentations is locked right and the writings after Psalms, and after Job, and after Proverbs, and then you have Ruth, and Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, and then right before Esther, you get Lamentations, sort of located there, where again, God has acted in ways that don't seem quite predictable. And the big question that so much the prophets are raising, like Jeremiah especially, are, why is God doing what he's doing? Why are the people of God suffering and the ways in which they are suffering? And the prophets press on that exposed nerve. Job presses on that exposed nerve as a kind of ancient figure from the smoky, hazy past. And the Psalms press on that exposed nerve again and again. God, what do we do? when it doesn't seem like life is going according to plan, when it doesn't seem like the body of Christ is going according to the plan, and when my own particular family and cultural dynamic doesn't seem to be going according to plan. All of those are issues that the psalmist will raise in one form or another. So that's why I think Psalm 25 is just so incredibly pertinent, at least it has been for me personally, the dynamics that we know are going on in our own parish that we're trying to navigate the dynamics that are going on within our own culture, that I think we're all feeling a real strong sense of disorientation wherever you plot yourself on the political map, right? Just, it's a very, We're in a season now that I think we can properly call disorientation and not sure what's around the next corner. Um, and if we know anything about the future, we know that we don't know it. Right, that's for sure. So here you have the psalmist that's in that season of disorientation modeling for you and for me what I think is what God is authorizing us and eliciting from us in these moments. Here's a pattern. Here's a, here, here's a bathrobe for you in the closet for you to put on in this moment. Try this one on. I think it'll fit in this season. If you're looking for words and language to pray, Here's one. And we go to Psalm 25 and look how it begins. And we talked about this last week. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That's that's step one. And there's a sense in which those words, as we talked about last week, are words that can shape and frame a complete and entire human existence. Every facet of our lives should and could be encapsulated within those first very few words in the, this text here, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. We did this together last week in what's, been, what's called within the liturgical tradition, the Sursum corda*. Lord, lift up your hearts. And how do we respond? We lift them up to you, O Lord. Recognizing that in that posture, that's prayer number one, Prayer number one is we recognize we are in complete dependence and reliance on you even when we feel disoriented. And even if we're not sure what's coming around the bend, we lift our hearts, our souls, our whole being. If you remember that Hebrew term we talked about last week, our nefesh, our necks, the the very organ that allows us to breathe and actually um, can sustain life, no neck. Now, I don't know a lot about medicine, but if you're severed from your head, as I understand it, you don't survive long. Um, and so if, here you have the psalmist speaking about that particular organ, which is in relationship to the whole of the body, so that everything that allows us to be, did you get the heart of that? Both bodily and spiritually, all of it, we're lifting up to the Lord in reliance on Him. And then he moves through this. And so you see that first particular prayer, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, that doesn't bother us a bit. No, it really not. doesn't. I mean, like for me, that's kind of music because I don't even, I, it's like not my child that I have to run to. That's what's so amazing. <laughs> I think about this in church when parents, you know, um, one of our, is Jennifer in here? One, one of our good friends has a, has a little girl and she's two now. Charlotte's her name, she's the cutest thing. Charlotte's real chatty in church these days. And, uh, and it, like for, for, I told Jennifer, listen, it's always so much louder for the parent than it is for the people around her. For us, it's like, that's a beautiful thing. I don't have to run to it. It's your problem. Bless you. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to the psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And so you have this repeated refrain that kind of runs through the psalm. A recognition of dependence on the Lord. A recognition that the enemies are real. That this, this, they're not phantoms. Um, don't let our enemies triumph over us. Don't let us be put to shame. Don't let your own name be put to shame. So that there's there's a lot at stake here. So that I think this is important to lay out that the psalmist and I appreciate this about so many of the psalms doesn't really tell you and me what the issues are that gave rise to the problem. We don't we don't know what the enemies are doing. And and this is an aside teacher moment. These kinds of questions that we're raising about the Psalms are what have given rise to the Psalm title tradition that you have in the Psalter. You know, these titles that you see that are kind of in small, um, smaller font, italicized at the beginning, like Psalm 51, for example, Have mercy upon me, O God. And you read the italicized part, the prayer David prayed after he sinned with Bathsheba. Um, and the whole history of these psalm titles are fascinating because, again, this is a, a side teachery moment here, um, but the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, has more psalm titles than the Hebrew text does. So it shows that there is a kind of interpretive instinct, even within the Jewish tradition, to link these psalms to some, what they would call a historical hypothesis by which to read these particular psalms. Um, a, a psalm when David was hiding in the cave from King Saul or something like that. Um, so the, the point is, interpreters for a long time have raised questions like, well, what were the circumstances in life that gave rise to this particular psalm? Um, this psalm here has no title. <laughs> of David. There's your title. Um, and I, I actually appreciate those psalms that don't have titles. And I appreciate, actually, the instinct not to provide a historical context by which to read the psalm. Because, again, the actual circumstances, the accidents of history giving rise to the psalm aren't really as important. As the ongoing features of the psalm to help Christians and believers throughout the centuries say, you know what, I don't know what David's enemies were in that particular moment, but we can fill in the blank with whatever we need to fill in the blank in this moment. And that's why last week, and again this was the Gentilette take, but it's expansive, I don't want to limit it to this. I think it's proper to think of our enemies in a larger biblical theological frame as the great three that the Bible leaves us with again and again. The devil, our flesh, and the world. <laughs> right? You want to talk about enemies and not wanting our enemies to have triumph over us? Well, here's one enemy that we really don't want to triumph over us, namely ourselves. We, we are in conflict with ourselves. And, and we know that. and And we know that left on autopilot, right, um ourselves can become dissembled, a uh, disassociated. Um I I uh, keep oh that's, that's TMI, I won't say this. Um I I read often uh because I, I have it in our bedroom uh the, the essays of a French essayist—he's kind of the father of the essay genre in the Western world. A guy, French essayist by the name of Montagnier. <laughs> um, but Montaigne wrote this incredible little essay on the inconstancy of human beings. I, I've looked at that again and again. He's, and, 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 he's, and he's speaking particularly of something like courage. And Montaigne says, "Why is it that a man can be so courageous on the battlefield one day?" and cower in his tent the next. Now, some of you maybe have seen, for example, the um, the Band of Brothers series that came out, the World War II um, uh, drama out of HBO, um, and that one particular captain who had so much bravado and leadership at the beginning of the series, and by the end, he's a shell of himself. I mean, what is it about our inconstancy? We know that. Um, I, I, I I thought in my 20s, that I would have a lot more figured out in my 40s than I do. Maybe that's just how it rolls, I don't know. Maybe in my 50s I'll get it figured out, but I have my hunch, I have my hunch. Um, because we're fighting against ourselves and we're fighting against ourselves and our own basic instincts. Um, I, I, I re- I'm gonna say something somewhat controversial, but you know, t- take, it, take all of this with buckets of salt. Um, the, the, this whole sort of, I, I, I trust, I, I've learned to trust my gut or my instinct. Don't trust it too much. All right. Um, I mean, in certain areas I get experience in life and wisdom, but, but I, I, I wouldn't trust it too much. Um, because, again, ourselves are at, battles, are at battle with ourselves. Um, and then, of course, the world and its principles are not operating according to the truths of the gospel. And that, that's another thing that we recognize, whether we like it or not. At, at the um, recommendation of Zach Hicks, I've been reading, I just started uh, reading a book by Peter Whiteheart, who's really kind of our, our local, he lives in Birmingham, he's quite a, a significant theologian and churchman. Um, Peter wrote a little book called Theopolitan Liturgy. Um, I actually commend it to you. It's a small little paperback. And he's thinking about what it means, what, what, what's the liturgy. And he says, I'm not going to get into um, contemporary versus traditional. He says, I'm, I'm not going to get into um, partic- you know, vestments or no vestments. He says, I'm not, I'm not getting into the trappings. I'm raising questions about what does it mean for the people of God to live into the language of the Bible and the ways in which it prays as it lives in and is shaped by and in contradiction to the culture and we 're all shaped by the culture, whether we know it or not here 's I mean this is so obvious here's exhibit a. We use English right I mean that we 're using language that 's common to our culture this morning so that you and I can make sense of what it is that we 're hearing in the pulpit and praying together. Um, but these liturgies are shaping us their cultural norms and habits and behaviors and instincts that we have that are so prevalent in our world in ways that we are conscious of and unconscious of. And the whole point that Lightheart and others have made this as well, there's a real boom really, right now of sort of liturgical interest. James K.A. Smith is another one that's writing. Zach is doing his own work on this that's fascinating. I mean, there's a boom of interest in this whole notion that we are being shaped by cultural norms and enter into shared public liturgies together that are crafting and shaping what we value and what we love our affections and this is why i think it's so important for us here the psalmist is teaching us something about entering into a liturgical worshiping space that's shaped by these significant issues number one i lift my soul up to the lord i'm in complete dependence on him number two my enemies are real and they can be identified and named the devil Of the world, my flesh, they exist. Don't let them exult over me. Don't let me be ashamed in the face of my enemies. Those are real. And then, number three, you have this constant refrain throughout Psalm 25 for the Lord to teach him. Guide me in your way. This again gets into that whole liturgical notion. Shape me according to your word. I mean, just look at it from a cursory standpoint. Verse four make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths, lead me in your truth. And then look at verse 8, good and upright in the Lord. Okay, so the Lord is good, and He is upright. That is, by the way, He doesn't just do good things. We talked about this last week. God is goodness. To be proximate to God is to be in the land of the good, the beautiful, and the transcendent. There's a reason why all the great religions of the world understand something about human bliss. And you fill in the blank about where you experience human bliss. But there's a reason why human bliss is something that whispers to us of the transcendence of something other. That's because God is goodness. He is beauty. He is transcendence. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit what I'm about to admit to you. My wife is going to tell me later that I shouldn't have done this. Um, I don't really love Celine Dion music. <laughs> but maybe I do. And that's okay. I'm, I know it's not. I understand for you trendy music people out there that that's like saccharine. And I get it. All right. So I'm embarrassed. I'm not proud of this. But I've discovered on YouTube. Um this live concert that Celine Dion did in Boston in 2008 where she sings that Eric Carmen song All By Myself which is a kind of mixture of rock and you know what I'm talking about like the pianos right? And so I've discovered this and on my way when I'm alone in the car <laughs> I've listened to to this, and because the live concert, I, and this is 2008. Like, do concerts like this even happen? It's like at Madison Square Garden or somewhere. There's like 40,000 people in there. It's crazy, all to see Celine Dion. Lots of men in there too. Tears coming down. You know, um, so I get. But there's, she sings this song, and she's, the, the woman's got pipes. I mean, you might not like her music, but the woman can sing. And she's singing along, and, and she's into it, and she's, I mean, you talk about saccharine and melodramatic, I mean, it's all over the place. But then there's that little hiatus, where the piano comes in, and you have that sort of Rachmaninoff thing that comes back through, and then she comes back in, and then she kind of out of nowhere hits this high note, um, and... Of course, they've staged all this. the lights flash on, and the I, I, you know the I mean it's kind of an incredible human experience and and what and it's not so much it's the crowd I love to see in this video they just erupt i mean they can't help it because they they just experience now that might not be your thing, but for those forty thousand people they experience something there that was rather profound, even the great Um, dyspeptic philosophers of the 19th century and early 20th century like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, these guys, who gave us a lot of bad stuff that's had its influence still in the world today, even those guys would say, when you experience music like this, it's a moment of the transcendent. It allows you to escape, for at least a lightning flash of a moment, it allows you to escape your... The the humanity that you're sort of bound to in the suffering of this world, even just for for a moment. So, all of that to my mind, and this is where I've become maybe a little bit more platonic as I've gotten older, I don't know. But there's a taste of something transcendent in these things. And the psalmist, from beginning to end, is telling you the the whole of the Psalter the reason why that's the case is because God is good, He is goodness. He is beauty. So that beauty in this world is a similitude. It's a kind of reflection of the beauty of God himself. And we see that. And look at how the psalmist moves. Good and upright is the Lord. Okay, well then what's the result of his goodness? And I love this in the Psalter. He speaks. He's good. And he does not keep his goodness to himself. God can't do that. Uh, and, And in fact, God's goodness, which is full and complete in himself, he needs nothing external to himself to fulfill his goodness. But God creates space for you and for me and for this world to exist. And in its existence, God can't help but speak. And when God speaks, it's his goodness on display for you and for me. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, I love that. There's a causality here. Because God is good, because God is upright, therefore he speaks. He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. Um, and he teaches the humble his way. His goodness is linked to his teaching. Isn't that fascinating? Therefore, and look at this sinners, do you hear the language? The humble the humble, these are the ones, the sinners and people who recognize themselves as sinners are those who I think by the very nature of that recognition are moving toward a position of humility. There's a reason why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins the Beatitudes with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I do think there's a logical um, progression within the Beatitudes. In other words, if you don't get the first one, we, we can't go anywhere else together. Blessed are those who recognize the poverty of their own spirit, that they do not have the resources within themselves to better themselves or to make themselves acceptable before the holiness and the otherness and the goodness and the beauty of God. And those who are humble because they recognize that they are sinners and who move toward that recognition again and again, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says God's going to teach them. He's going to instruct them. He's not going to leave them to their own devices. He's going to guide them. Um, I love this line from when I was studying this. I thought of that hymn, um, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy, uh, especially with these verses 8, 9, and 10. Uh, I I think it's either the second or the third verse that says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of Him. You hear that? Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly fondly dream. All the fitness that He requires is that you feel your need of Him. In other words, this is verses 6, 7, and 8 here. Those who are humble, who recognize they're a sinner, who know that they need the Lord's instruction, that they don't have the resources themselves, and they're lifting up everything, their whole souls, their whole being um, to Him. And as you move on here, you see in verses 11, 12, and 13, um, actually, all, all verses 8 through 15 here. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. You see these recurring themes. Who is the man who fears the Lord? So are you starting to see this tableau that's being put, this, this painting that's being painted? Here, here's, here it is before you. Who's the person that's being instructed? The sinner, the humble, the one who fears. Um, This this would be so fun to kind of look at St. Augustine in the late 4th, early 5th century, writing his book on Christian teaching, because he uses this triad, a triad of fear, faith, and piety. The fear, a recognition of who we really are, in light of the otherness and the goodness and the beauty and the transcendence of God, that leads to um, faith a recognition that I don't have it within myself to bridge that chasm between me and that otherness that then results in piety, which for, the, which for Augustine can be very simply explicated with one word, love. Fear leads to faith, which leads to piety. And what's piety? Piety is loving God and loving my neighbor. In fact, St. Augustine went so far as to say, if your study of the Bible and if your engagement in the what we might call the intellectual life of the church, its theological life, if it doesn't result or move at least toward love of God and love of neighbor, then the study has gone off track. We're, we're moving very quickly toward the Apostle Paul stepping in and saying, careful now, um, knowledge unto itself leads toward pride. And Psalm 25 won't allow pride to be within the nexus of Humble, sinner, fear of God. You see the sort of faith, fear, and piety. So he instructs the one who fears the Lord. He will instruct him in the way in which he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. Now that, this is worth thinking about. This is a promise that God gives us. His soul will ab- abide in, well, dwell, in well-being. Um, human flourishing. This, there's an echo here in Psalm 25 back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. If the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not lacking anything. It's an echo back to Psalm chapter 1. How blessed, and what does that term That's the first term in the Psalter is Eshre. How blessed is the man or the person who who does not sit and walk and hang out with the ungodly, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. That term, Eshre, we translate as happy, blessed. It's the same word, I think, in Greek that Jesus is using in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, how blessed is the person that doesn't, you know, who's poor in spirit, or the blessed or the merciful. This language of blessing we might frame through the lens of the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Um, the blessed person is the one that knows the shining, smiling face of God. What, what we the, the, the term that's around a lot today is, that language of eshre or blessing is, human flourishing. What does it mean to be really human? And human at its fullest. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, and I, we don't always like being human because we know about our fallenness. But for my money, one of the great hopes that we have about the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come is we will experience humanity, true humanity in its fullness. We we don't become semi-divine in the new heavens and the new earth. There are some Christian traditions that sort of teach that. I'm not persuaded by that. I don't think we become divine in the new heavens and the new earth. We become really human. And we know that humanity means a lot to God because he became a man, right? And still is a man in Jesus Christ and will be forever. So the whole notion about being truly human and flourishing in that way is central to the psalmist's concern. Let me let my soul know true well-being. It is well with my soul. Um, though I have the external circumstances around me, right? And by the way, this is a feature that we find in the Psalms regularly when the Psalms move from disorientation back to reorientation, never, well, that's maybe hyperbolic, but I'm going to stick to it until I can falsify it later, never does that move from disorientation to reorientation occur because their circumstances got better. Or, the, or boy, my, my enemy's house just fell in on him. just found that out yesterday. Ah, let's go play golf today. It's a, you don't have that kind of language in the Psalter. What you have is a reorientation toward those things that are ultimate and true and final and transcendent. And so that the soul, even though you have external circumstances physically that weigh in on me, my soul as well, because verse 1, I'm lifting up to the Lord. Because verses 6 through 7, I recognize that I'm a sinner and, and that leads to humility and fear. And because of those things, I can recognize now that my soul is safe with Him. There's a reason why Jesus said, don't fear those that can, take care, that can kill your body. You need to fear those that, that are true threats to your soul, to your inner person. So my soul is in well-being, He says, and my offspring shall inherit the land. Look at this beautiful phrase here. The friendship of the Lord is with those who fear Him. To fear the Lord which I think we might just translate very simply as to live into the reality of his existence. To live into the reality that God is and what he says is true. Those who live into that are God's friends. I mean, it's, I mean that, that, that kind of intimate language, I think, makes us uncomfortable because it's hard to hold together the transcendence of God and His eminence. But the Bible, again and again, forces us to that place, to recognize that God is transcendent and otherness, other. I can get lost in His light. In the heat of His light, it's overwhelming. And yet, at the same time, how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. He is near to us, like a... Hen, gathering her chicks underneath her wings. The, the Bible speaks of both of those aspects of God's being in relation to, uh, to us in the same breath. The friendship of God is with those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for He will pluck my feet out of the net. And this is where I wanted to get today and then I'll stop. Yeah. Look at verse 16, 17, and 18. Um, this this is what we might call Christian realism. So you see that the enemies are talked about at the beginning. The soul is being lifted up to the Lord. There's a recognition that I'm a sinner. I don't have the resources within myself, which leads to humility, which leads to fear. But guess what? Troubles continue. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me because I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider my foes. They're still around me. With what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul. Deliver me. Don't let me be put to shame for I take refuge in you. In other words, this is the, this is the candid, honest nature of the Old Testament that I continue to love more and more. <laughs> I mean, The Old Testament doesn't allow you um, doesn't create the space for what we might call um, a Buddhist approach to Christianity. In other words, I can get on some ladder of ascent and transcend myself, it, whether whether through Stoicism or whether through some sort. I mean, the, and, and all those philosophies are present, and I should say something. They are attractive. I mean, Stoicism is an attractive philosophy um, to live into a kind of equilibrium where my highs aren't too highs and my lows aren't too lows, too low. There's something very attractive about that kind of existence. Cicero, as I understand it, and I've got a classics person here, so I need to be careful. Cicero, as I understand it, leaned heavily into a Stoic philosophy, saw its value, expounded it, presented it in his own powerful rhetorical way until apparently his daughter died. And then he had to deal with the grief that caught him completely by surprise. Because his low got way lower than any Stoic should have allowed. So there are philosophies that are out there on offer for that kind of thing. But not the Bible. And The Bible, by the way, will present that to you and we're going to get here in the new heavens and the new earth. We get it there. But while our feet trod the soil of this earth, right? we don't get to transcend what it means to be human. With its ups and with its downs, with its orientation, with its disorientation, with its joys and with its losses. And here you have the psalmist moving through to you, O Lord, to you. I lift my soul. You know who I am. Back down to my grief, my grief. I can't get away from it. My foes are still here. I'm still troubled. I'm still in distress. And where does he go again? Back to I take refuge in you. In other words, there's a constant internal conversation with the psalmist that, I will admit to you, can at times be exhausting in this life of faith. It can be exhausting. I mean, there's times I just would like to take a break. And there's space for that too, I believe. But again and again, we're being drawn back to this place where the psalmist leaves us. I have taken refuge in you. Our circumstances haven't changed. Not everything's clear right now. I don't know what lies around the next bend in the corner here of life. Yet, I take refuge in you. And look at the final verses here. I just love it. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. Which, if you read enough of the Old Testament, you know that kind of language is thoroughly eschatological. It's future-oriented. That's, um, if I can put it in our terms, that's ancient Israel's way of saying, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Um, eventually we know that your redemption is at hand. And when it will come, when the resurrection of the body is real and actualized, it will only be because you yourself, oh God, have done it for us. So this is why I like Psalm 25. And Psalm 25 takes you a little bit on a roller coaster, which is kind of like our lives. <laughs> right? It's up and it's down, and then it's kind of, you know, you get that one area where it's like, oh, that's kind of normal, and then it goes up again, and because that's, that's what it means to exist. And in the existence of that ride of our lives, the psalmist teaches us something about how we can live into the disorientation of it. Continually, not just one time, but again and again in a life of repentance, lifting up our souls to the Lord, which is a recognition, a posture of dependence. Calling a thing a thing, which is something we do talk a lot about here at the Advent. Recognizing who we really are. Sinners in need of a Savior, which leads to humility, which leads to fear, which leads to faith. Asking the Lord for His guidance throughout this journey. You guide me. You teach me. You instruct me. I don't want to be an autodidact right? in my own life. I want to be self-taught in my own life. I need you, O Lord, to guide me. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim in this barren land. And where do we rest finally and ultimately? We know you're going to redeem Israel from all of his troubles. We know eventually the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world is to come. Because without that, all bets off. We're lost to really um, the pressures and the shape of this world in its current form. I do believe, I'm going to say this as an aside, I do believe this is one of the, one of the issues that are facing... I'm going to say, young people, right? Um, When you believe that this world is all that we have, it it can lend itself to enormous despair. Because even the good things of this world that we get to experience seem to lack something. This is, Augustine, by the way, would say, kind of leaning on the Neoplatonic tradition, Augustine would say, this, this is our memories. When we experience something that's good, and yet it's not completely satisfying, we're remembering something more. And the remembering that we have that's more is God himself. This is why, ultimately, we're looking for that destination, so that all things lead toward that end. So, Lord, help us. Uh, Psalm 25. We need, I need it. Um, Lord, we need your word in, in our community. Um, it's not just for us to go and to read it privately, though we need to do that. Or We need to be reading and studying and hearing your word in places like this, even this morning. Thank you for this opportunity. Help us to lift our souls up to you, O oh Lord. Everything that we have for human flourishing and well-being and final ultimate hope is in your hands. And I pray, O oh Lord, that that will help us to be released into the confidence, Lord, to love you and to love our neighbors. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.